We're in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2 this morning. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. Um, this is kind of a, uh, it's a neat section to study through because you get kind of a different glimpse of Paul. We get to see a little bit of Pastor Paul come out in this section. And, and what, what's happening is there, there's been some false accusations leveled against Paul and Silas and Timothy during their time that they spent at the church in Thessalonica. And so Paul is going to just kind of humbly address these things, attempting to bring clarification and unity. It's funny because we usually think of Paul kind of as that type A personality that almost just mows through, you know, to get things done. He was always just kind of, you know, Apostle Paul. And, and, and now we get to see this, this same guy kind of tenderly open up his heart and share with these folks. Uh, it's hard sometimes for, for pastors and, and for people in, you know, positions like this to, to open up and be vulnerable and and honestly, a lot of pastors are discouraged from doing this. The idea of being real, too real, is something that's discouraged by people that are in the know. That sounds weird, but I, you know, I've talked to guys that have been through seminary. <laughs> we haven't. But they, they sometimes will say, hey, make sure that you guard yourself. Stay, don't get too up close and purse with the congregation. Make sure you keep some distance there and, and, and protect yourself, protect your family. That's kind of the, the thing that's taught. And that, that seems kind of odd. You don't, you're almost discouraging them from being transparent. And if you've been here any length of time, you know that we're pretty transparent. You know, one of, one of the things that I think this is, it's really important. Recent studies have shown that, that one of the reasons younger people have stopped coming to church is they, they long for this kind of, you know, the word is authentic, but this, this realness, this transparency, they long for that. And they don't often see it in churches. And that's been kind of my church experience in the past. It was, it was always normal to kind of see everybody in church sort of pretending all the time, like everything was okay. Um, we, we do that for some reason. You can never really be honest about the, the real things that are going on in your life, the troubles that you're facing, because you were afraid you would be that odd person out, kind of the freak in the group. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but but I remember thinking, well, I better not let them see the real me, because they'll be, you know, like point at you and scream or something, oh, get out. That's how I always felt. I don't know why we do this, but we do. I heard a quote a while back that was just devastating to me. So I'm just going to warn you, brace yourselves for impact. Listen to this. I don't know why Christians are so upset about wearing masks. Most of them have been doing it for years. I know. It was like, ooh, yeah, that's a good one. You know, it's true though. we do this in churches. We, we, we just kind of put on the smile mask and, and act like everything's okay. There, there's a huge relief when you can finally take it off, well, spiritually and physically, but and just be honest. It's something we don't like to do, but when you finally do that, it's almost like you can breathe a sigh of relief. What you realize is that you're not the freak. You're not the odd person in the group, but that everybody in church is probably kind of like you in different ways. We all have things we you know, we all have brokenness in our lives. We all have things we struggle with. We all have family problems, and we all have sins that that get the better of us. That's that's kind of who we are. And we purposely tried to create an atmosphere that allows for that at the door. Um, that's part of the, 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 the mindset behind that phrase that we put on some of our shirts and stuff that says sinners only. I, I think some people get that wrong. I remember when we put those out, the, when we first put those shirts out, there were a couple of guys that were like, yeah, they're, they're bummed. We're like, whoa, whoa, no, wait a second. That's not, you know, we're not saying, you know, you're supposed to get excited about that. It's that we don't have to hide it. Um, we know that Jesus said he didn't come for the healthy, but he came for the sick, for those 
for those that actually understood that they, they had this need. So we don't, we don't ever want to glory in our crud. We don't want to, you know, yeah, look at it. That's not the idea behind it at all. We should hate our sin and we should hate our brokenness and we should strongly desire to see Jesus change that in us. But we don't have to act like it's not there. We don't have to pretend that everything's going okay in our lives when it isn't. And hopefully that's kind of the atmosphere here because the truth is that nobody likes that hypocritical thing, do they? The world sees it. They see when Christians are being fake and they hate it. And I, you know, I don't like it either. And so we don't have to pretend and we can take heart that Jesus is actually transforming us. If you're in Christ, you are being transformed right now. I don't know how exciting that is for you to hear, but for me, it's just like, thank you. I'm glad because I need, I need that. Um, every one of us is in, in the process of an extreme makeover, right? <laughs> I remember that show. I was like, I want that move the bus moment to come in my life now. Like, you know, move that bus. Be like, yeah. It's not there yet, but I'm in the process of it. And, and that's exciting to me. And, and the cool thing about sanctification, that's something we're all going through. We're being made holy. We're being conformed into the image of Christ. It's a process. And each of us are at different stages in that process. So what God might be working on in your life might be different than my life. And so that means we need to have some patience with each other and some grace for each other sometimes and, and encourage each other in that process, right? But what I love about, about this passage is you see Paul just opening up and being honest and, and transparent, which I think we need to do. He was just a great example of, of this. What you saw is what you got with Paul. He was, he was what I would call the real deal. Paul actually wrote in a letter that he was the chief of sinners, can you imagine saying that? I am the worst sinner I know. Can you imagine saying that? I've said that from the pulpit before. I, I literally, you know, I don't say that to be self-effacing. I am the worst sinner I know because I know my heart and I know my thoughts and I don't know yours, but I know mine. And Paul was able to say that. His life was an open book. He had a clear conscience before God, but he also cared about holiness. And that combination makes for a very effective ministry. So in chapter 2, Paul's writing to clear up some misunderstandings and accusations about his time with his church because it looks like people had questioned his motives and his, his sincerity as to why he was there in that church and what he was up to. You can kind of imagine what the opponents of Paul would have, would have sounded like if, if you could have heard them because it looked like the minute things got rough, Paul abandoned the church. He took off in the middle of the night and just got out of there. And so you can hear them, you know, them saying, you know, he doesn't care about you guys. He only cares about himself. He's probably just taking advantage of you, trying to get rich or trying to get women or trying to get you know, fame, something like that. So he's just a, a snake oil salesman. He's a charlatan that, that just goes from town to t- town, deceiving gullible people and taking advantage of them. That's what he's doing. The minute things got rough, he bailed. That, you can hear people kind of saying this kind of stuff. And so, so Paul is addressing this, and he's, he's really just asking the ter- church to take a step back from all the noise and all the stuff they're hearing and say, guys, think about what you know to be true. What did you see when we were there? What did you witness from us? Don't listen to all this speculation. <laughs> Look at what you know was true. And we have to do that sometimes as Christians because we will try to fill in the blanks when we don't have all the information. And the stuff we come up with is kind of kooky sometimes. I, I, we've seen that in our own church right? You know, over the years. And it's, it, I'll be honest and say it's kind of frustrating. I wish that there were times when like we would get the benefit of the doubt sometimes. And, and we do a lot of times, but I, you know, a couple of things that have come up over the years that one of them was, you know, how pastor David is, he's, he's one of these guys that if there's a new work 
He wants to be there. If there's something exciting going on over here that, that he can be a part of as far as getting a church plant going, he wants to be a part of that. Well, and I'm the opposite, by the way. I'm like, I'm going to stay right here where it's comfortable and where it's nice, where I don't have to. There's no danger over there. I'll, I'll stay here. And David's like, oh, I want to. Anyway, the point is that at one point it was said that because he, when, you know, three rivers, uh, well, we're three rivers, uh, Riverwoods or Lapine started and he goes there and people said, well, he doesn't care about this church. He doesn't care about these people. Well, that's ridiculous. You know how he's wired. He's always going to do that thing. It doesn't mean he doesn't love this place. I mean, he started this church. He loves it. He loves the people here. But that was one of the things that was said. And when COVID happened, that was another thing we heard was that the pastors don't care about people. They don't love these people. They don't care. It was just like, I, I wanted to say like, guys, for 10 years, you've watched our lives. And, and you, you know, hopefully that's not the conclusion you come to. If it is, come and talk to us. Let's, let's reason together and, and let's try to, you know, figure this out. Because it's important that we stay unified. And that's really what Paul's doing here in this letter is he's trying to kind of come back and remind them, take a big step back and remind them of what they know to be true. And so that's what we're going to be looking at here in the first eight verses. So 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 1 says this, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain, but though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves, because you had become very dear to us. So you can hear kind of the the heart of a pastor coming out who loves the church and loves these people. He starts out in verse 1 with the phrase, you know, and he repeats that throughout the passage. You know this, you know this. And he's simply reminding them of, of what they've witnessed firsthand to be true. He says, you know that our coming to you was not aimless. It wasn't pointless. And it certainly might have looked that way to an outsider. Anybody that was watching what, what took place could have concluded, well, that was a waste of time. They were literally run out of town and had to escape for their life. So that, that doesn't look good. I mean, that's not, you can, you can picture them in their strategy meeting. This is not how they drew it up on paper to go at all. And so you can say, well, that that didn't work. But looks can be deceiving, can't they? God was clearly involved in all of this. And if God is involved, things are never aimless or pointless, even though we don't always get to see the results we want to see. And and if you've ever been in ministry, you know this to be true. It can be so discouraging sometimes when all you do is try to look for results as, as the way to determine if something's successful or not. Sometimes the results aren't there. And we can get bummed out by lack of attendance or lack of interest or, or whatever it might be. You, you begin to wonder if what you're doing matters at all. It's like, is there, is there any point to this? Well, yeah, if God's involved in it, of course there is. It all matters. Even, even if you take everything else away and just know that it matters to your heavenly father, that, that you're doing these things unto him, that matters to God. But it also, you know, clearly matters when you look at the, the kind of the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. If, if you look at the actual reality of what happened in, in this little town of Thessalonica, before Paul got there, how many churches, Christian churches were there? <laughs> None, right? Yeah, they got run out of town in the middle of the night. But guess what? When Paul left, you know what existed? A church full of believers, people. So, 
you know, this is, this is an, an amazing success, even though it, it didn't feel that way at times, I'm sure. You know, you can imagine kind of how they might have felt if they would have just let their circumstances be the litmus test for what was going on, especially when you, when you read in verse 2 and, and you understand that this was par for the course. This was like, this wasn't their first rodeo. This is like the same thing that they experienced in pretty much every town they went to. So it says this, But though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Much conflict is kind of an understatement. If you know what happened in Philippi, you can read about that in Acts 16, 19. But this is where you had uh, these guys, basically the, the town officials grabbed them, beat them with rods publicly, arrested them, and threw them in jail. So things aren't, aren't looking very good. And then it says in the middle of the night, Paul and Silas were in jail, uh, shackled, chained, shut in. And guess what they're doing? Just whining, complaining about how, where's God when you need him? No, they're singing hymns. They're singing praises to God in jail. Why? Because they know that God's up to something. That's why. And then you have this, this earthquake that happens. And the, the door opens to the jail cell. Somehow the shackles come off their feet and they can make a run for it, right? Look at that. What happens? The guard sees this, understands that if they do run for it, he's a dead man. So he, he's like, well, I'll save the officials a few steps and I'll just do it myself. And Paul stops him and says, don't wait. Everything's cool. We're all here. Nobody's running. You're good. The jailer can't believe what he's seeing. You know, these guys are singing praises to God. They have a chance to run and they don't. What is going on? And it causes them to come to them and say, what must I do to be saved? And so Paul and Silas lead this jailer to the Lord and his whole family as well. I mean, again, you know, if you look at the circumstances, you would be like, this is, this is terrible. None of this is good. But then you look at the results and you, and you can't do anything else but conclude God is in this. You know, when we equate conflict and opposition with God's absence, we're, we're missing something here. We do that, though, don't we? we? We pretty much say, if it's difficult, God must not be in it. We do that all the time. And I want to say, have you ever read your Bible? Do you even Bible, bro? It's like, it would be more accurate to say if it's difficult, God must be at work. Because that's what we see. Opposition means God's doing something. That's what opposition does for us. Two important things. It tells us that we're involved in something that warrants opposition, doesn't it? If you're a sports person and you watch this, um, if you've got a really good player on, on, on the court or the field, what do they do? They double team that guy or triple team him. Team him. They're not, they're not concerned about, you know, the bad player that's not doing much. You know, he's fine by himself, but, but they're on top of the person that's doing something exciting. And, and you kind of, you see this with Paul firsthand. I mean, I think we would all agree Paul was a pretty effective minister of the gospel. And yet Paul had something called a, a thorn in his flesh that he, he didn't tell us what it is, but he pleaded with God. It was this opposition. He called it a messenger of Satan to buffet him or to harass him. That's, that's kind of a crummy thing to have. And God said, no, no, I'm going to leave it there. Paul pleaded with them, take it away, Lord. And God said, no, I'm going to leave it there. Why? Because my strength is perfected in your weakness or, or my strength is going to come through because of this. My grace is sufficient for you. And this is something that will actually help you to rely on me more. So we see this, that it, it causes us to know that something's really going on and it causes us to rely on God and his strength. So opposition didn't discourage these guys. It actually emboldened them. It caused them to, to do more. So Paul's basically saying this. We got arrested, humiliated, beaten, run out of town. Praise God. Look at all that he's accomplishing. Like he's up to something and he's using us. That was the mindset. 
And I would just, I would plead with you to think this way because right now in our country and even in the church, there's things that we, things look bleak at times. Things look discouraging at times. And we wonder, has God left the building? Is he not part of this anymore? Is he, what's going on here? And we can look at it that way. We convince, we can convince ourselves that God is absent or we can see God at work in the midst of it. And I say, God is at work. I know he's at work. Let me ask you this. On a, on a really bright, sunny day, how many of you guys walk around with a flashlight out just everywhere you go? Nobody? No, you'd look like a lunatic, wouldn't you? Because it's light out. When do you need the light? You need it when it gets dark out. And that's exactly what's happening right now. The darker things get, the more people begin to look for light. They look, they seek light. And guess, guess who we know? The light of the world. That's who Jesus is, the light of the world. This should excite us, not discourage us. We have more opportunity to tell people about the light of the world. You know, if you think of the church that way, as a lighthouse, that's what we are. We have two lighthouses in this area, here and in Lapine. And we have people all around us on a stormy sea. Desperate. Desperate. And are we not going to turn the light on for them? Of course we need to. So this is why we can be confident that what we're doing matters. You get to be involved in that. And Paul had the same confidence. Yes, there's opposition. Yes, there's hardship. But but people were being saved and a church was being established. And that's always a reason to rejoice. That's a win for us. And we're seeing these things happen right now. We're seeing more people coming to Christ. We're seeing more people looking for light. These are exciting times. Not, not as a patriot. As a patriot, it's like not so exciting. As a Christian, super exciting. Okay? So, they were able to preach Christ with boldness in, in spite of strong opposition. And, and I think, how do we do that? How do we, where does this boldness come from? Uh, if I were to ask you guys a show of hands, how many of you feel bold right now to just go out and share the gospel? Probably not many hands would go up. Most of us don't feel that. We wouldn't describe ourselves that way. Where does this boldness come from? Well, it comes from the Holy Spirit is the correct answer. Yes. Good job. Usually you just answer Jesus. And when somebody asks, what's the, you know, Jesus. Yep. But this time, Holy Spirit. Yeah. It comes from, from knowing that it's God's power and not ours. If you think back to Acts chapter one and verse eight, you know, they, these guys were raring to go. And he said, wait a sec, guys, don't take off yet. Wait for the Holy Spirit. That's when you'll have power to do what you need to do. So it's God's power. I love this story uh, that Charles Spurgeon tells. He, he wrote a lot of these things down. And this is just a, a really great one that, that kind of illustrates his point really well. It was early in his ministry. He writes this. In 1857, a day or two before preaching at the Crystal Palace, I went to decide where the platform should be fixed in order to test the acoustic properties of the building. So I cried in a loud voice, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. That was his, his test in the room to see how, how things were working. In one of the galleries, a workman who knew nothing of what was being done heard the words, and they came to him like a message from heaven to his soul. He was smitten with conviction on account of sin. He put down his tools. He went home, and there, after a season of spiritual struggling, he found peace and life by beholding the Lamb of God. And it was on his deathbed that this man told the story of his conversion, the result of God speaking to him through a single verse of Scripture uttered by a pastor who didn't even know he was there. That's the power of God. 
I love that. Spurgeon could have said, he could have done his ABCs, you know. He did, I, I think about the times we do sound checks. I usually don't do that, but I might start. I mean, what have we got to lose, right? This is the power of God through the message of the gospel. His power. God has asked us to, to simply proclaim a message. A simple message at that. That's all. We don't have to convince anyone. It's not up to us to control somebody's emotions or to make sure they believe. We can't do any of that. Only God can. We've been asked to sow seeds. We can do that, right? There you go. Sow seeds. Sometimes we're asked to water them. You know what we're never asked to do? Cause them to grow. (laughs) Only God can do that. So we have the simple part. Throw them out there. Throw some water out there. Let him take care of the rest. That takes the pressure off of us, doesn't, doesn't it? But... It still takes courage. It still takes boldness to share our faith. But if we really care about people and believe that Christ is the only answer, we will be compelled to tell others, won't we? You know, it's, it's so funny to me to think about how freely we share our advice with people when it comes to just about everything else. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but we will tell people what they should eat in order to stay healthy. We'll tell people what medicine or treatment they should take to overcome illness, right? If you've heard this stuff, you need to get gluten out of your life right now. It's like, well, who are you to tell me that? But we, we, we don't have any problem saying that. You need zinc. I have tons of people tell me I need zinc all the time. Ivermectin. I don't, you know, you've heard that one. It's like, shh, you better have ivermectin at your house right now, buddy, or you're going to be in big trouble. It's like, really? You can tell me that? Remember ginkgo biloba? I don't even know what that is, but that was a big thing a while ago. It's like, who are you to tell me that I need that? You know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, even to the point where you would walk up to a stranger and be like, you need to get that mole looked at. You know, it's like, that's pretty bold, isn't it? But we won't say, you need Christ. When it comes to eternity, we clam up. The thing they need to hear more than anything else. And we're silent on the matter. Isn't that tragic to think about? And I'm guilty of this. The boldness that we need to tell others should come from a sense of urgency. We must tell people because the stakes are so high and the time is so short. You know, I know a lot of you have been putting off that conversation that you need to have with somebody. Um, out of love and out of concern for them, have it. It's time. Don't put it off. But we would be foolish not to expect strong opposition when we decide to do this. Uh, You know, that's what Paul was dealing with. The cynics, they always come out. They try to convince everybody. They try to convince you that what you're doing is stupid, that, that you're selfish for doing it, that, you know... You're rude, all these kinds of things. And that, that's kind of the idea of what they were doing with Paul. You know, Paul's just in it for this, or he's just, you know, what's the catch, Paul? What's in it for you? Well, in the next several verses, Paul's going to explain the pure character of their motives. And he wants everybody to know that they were above board in what they were doing, that they are the real deal, that th- this was pure in what they were doing. So in verse 3, it says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man but to please God who tests our hearts. So they they had come to these people and asked them to believe the gospel and submit their lives to Jesus Christ. And now he's reassuring them by telling them a few things. He said, wait, first off, this message was approved by God. This wasn't our message that we came up with. This was a message from God for you. God was very pleased with them that they would tell these people about that. So they're saying, God's pleased with what we've done. And, And he says, we didn't use flattery. We didn't use deceit. And we didn't try to improve upon the message. These are all very important things. There was no 
trickery or the old bait and switch. I think that we do that very often when it comes to the gospel. We, we think that we either need to water down the message so that it won't be as offensive for the, for the listener, or we need to upsell the message so that they'll really want to, you know, oh, okay, I'll, you know, sure, I'll try Jesus. Why not? What have I got? To, you know, we do that kind of thing where we, we, we tend to do both of these things. We don't do people any favors when we conceal the true cost of discipleship or when we promise fake blessings. You don't need to improve upon the gospel. The gospel message is really come and die, okay? That's what you're asking people to do. Come and die so that you can find life. Jesus said, take up your cross daily, right? The one who loses his life will find it. That, that's the message of the gospel. Not, not what we tell people today. Now we try to tell people that, you know, it's, it's much more pleasant to say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, you know, for you to experience your best life now. That's the kind of thing that will fill stadiums. And it is. You just go and look. That, that's what they're doing. That, that will sell all day long. But telling people to come and die, not, not, it doesn't, doesn't pack them in. But it's the, it's the message of the gospel. Come and die so that you can find life in Christ. Yeah. We live in a time when people will take advantage of others in order to get what they want for them. We're seeing it just almost flaunted at times. And, you know, we see it in politics, we see it in the media, and unfortunately, we see it in the church. In fact, many people think that's what happens every week in church is that, that you, you know, this is just a bunch of gullible people that are being fleeced and they don't even know it. That, that's, what they, that's what they think. There's just greedy people out there that are taking advantage. This is one of the reasons, in case you've ever wondered, why we rarely ever talk about giving at the door. Have you ever noticed that we don't bring that up? We don't pass the plate. It, you can't even hardly find out where to do it. We have people ask us, like, if, if we wanted to give, is it possible? It's like, yeah, there's boxes. You know, you got to hunt for them, but they're there. If you go to our website, you have to literally, you know, try hard to find the giving tab. Try it. You know, it's not, it's not, you go to most churches' websites, and I'm not being critical. Guess what's on the front page in very clear, you know, it's right there because they want you to find it. We don't ever want that to be like the highlight of why you come to church. We don't ever want anybody to, you know, it, you can use the gospel as a means of gain. That disgusts me. We never want to be accused of that. And so that's why we don't talk about it. It's also one of the reasons that we have multiple co-equal pastors at the door to make sure that we have accountability and checks and balances, that we don't ever have anybody that, that can, you know, step up and take advantage and things like that. At the time Paul wrote this letter, you know, there were celebrities then too. It was just different than what we do today. Now, you, you know, you get a YouTube account or TikTok or whatever the, whatever the kids are doing today. I don't know how to do it. But you can become a celebrity. And in, in this time, what you had to do is you would go from town to town and you would entertain people. And the, the more entertaining you were, the, the more name you would have for yourself, the more money you could make. And that was kind of the idea. And that's almost what they're, they're accusing Paul of. And he is trying to distance himself from that crowd. This is not who we are. This is not what we're like. And we need to do that as the church too. You know, it's always telling to, to watch what somebody gains from their ministry and also to see how they justify it. I don't know if you've ever paid attention to, you know, what some people are, you know, what they're gaining from their ministry, but sometimes it's, it's just kind of disgusting. There's a, there's a really bad, uh, I don't know if it's bad or not, but I, I think it's kind of entertaining, but it's also kind of gross, uh, Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers. You guys ever seen this? <laughs> It, it basically, some guy just takes pictures of, of famous preachers and pastors, it takes pictures of the shoes they're wearing on a Sunday morning, and he'll say, those are like $3,000 sneakers, and or the jacket or whatever, and he'll just highlight it. And it's just like, it, it's one of those things you kind of want to see and you kind of don't. But I've, obviously I've looked. These are like, these are 30 bucks, just so you know. And there's a, there's a big hole in the bottom of it, so... 
don't take pictures. But it's like the, there are, there's a lot of money to be made telling people about Jesus, if that's your goal. And, and it's kind of frustrating. I am comforted by the fact that my fellow pastors here, and, and you know I'm one of them as well, but I hope that you're comforted by this too, that, that we would continue to do this, whether we got paid or not. Uh, we started out not getting paid. Eventually, we, you know, we have. But if that all went away tomorrow, and it could, we know that, we're, we wouldn't stop doing this because this is what we're called to do. It's not to get rich. It's not to get famous. It's to make Jesus famous. And so the money's, you know, we all need money to, to live, but that's never the goal. Um, we don't ever want there to be opportunity for abuses of power or, or any of the temptation of what Paul talks about in verses 5 and 6. So look at what 5 and 6 says. It's almost like the the recipe of what somebody would do if they wanted to kind of use the gospel to make money. The opposite, actually. But he says this, So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext or a cloak for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. I love that. It just lays out the way we ought to be as pastors and the way we ought to be as the church. Paul calls God as his witness to the following statements. We spoke to please God, not man. We didn't use flattery. We were not greedy. And we did not seek glory and fame. I hope that will always or can be said about us and will always be said about us because, because I don't see this too often anymore. In, in a lot of churches, this is absent. There's a lot of good churches out there, but I know I see a lot of them where this isn't the, the, the case. One of the, the ways you can grow a huge and successful church is to, to learn to speak to please men. You know, that's, that's, it works. That means you never talk about anything that might upset somebody. Never talk about sin or anything that would discourage them or cause them to stop giving or tempt them to go to another church. You know, you need to make sure that you always give them those nice messages that feel good, that are, you know, make you happy and make you feel good about yourself. That's, that's what you would do. This is one of the problems with really big churches that they, they face. I'm not saying big churches are bad, but they, they face this is that when they, you become this big giant machine that has to be fed, you need to think about this stuff. There's big salaries. There's, I, I was talking to a friend of mine that's not in this area, but he said they had 48 people on staff when COVID hit. 48 people. That's crazy. And then their numbers drop down to a quarter of what they were. Well, they've got to figure that out, right? And one of the temptations would be you're, you, you put yourself in a position where you're forced to compromise your message to satisfy the people, to keep them happy, to keep them coming. And, and this is one of the reasons why, again, the pastors of the door, we don't know who gives. We don't know. We have no idea what you give or who gives or how much they give. We do that on purpose. Because can you imagine, like, if somebody at the church pretty much paid your salary, how you'd have to treat that person? I mean, we're all human, right? Well, hey, hey want a good seat? You know, can I get anything for you? Are you thirsty? You, you'd, you'd think that way. We don't want to be tempted to think that way. So we don't have to sit there and worry about that and make sure that they, they stay happy. Our, our job isn't to make people happy or to please them. Although I really like it as a people pleaser. I really like it when that's the case. I want people to be happy. I want them to be pleased. That's by nature. But that's not my priority. My priority is to make sure that we tell you the stuff that, that you need to hear. Even the stuff that you may not want to hear. That's what, that's what we have. And I've always appreciated those people in my life that are willing to do that. That means they love me. You know, I recently had somebody come up after a sermon and say this to me, which is just fantastic. Thank you. I needed to hear that. And I hate you. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, okay. You know, we, we, can't, we can't make decisions on 
you know, with this stuff in mind, you know, approval polls, that's how we do things today, court of public opinion, uh, how do we keep people happy? That's, you, you can't, you can grow a big church by doing that, but you won't grow a healthy church by doing that. And we're more interested in growing a healthy church. So we need to kind of brace ourselves for the reality that Christians are not going to have high approval ratings in this country anymore. I think those days are, are beyond us, especially, the, you know, the, the weirder the country gets and the more they move away from the word of God, the weirder we're going to look and the less approval we're going to have. And we need to prepare ourselves for that. One of the most freeing things we can do as Christians is to accept that fact and then make the decision of who we want to please. Whose approval do you want? Paul came to this conclusion. He drew a line in the sand and he wrote this in Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He saw it that clearly. We need to do the same. It's going to be harder and harder for us to do this as our, as our culture continues to move, move away from the word of God. We've already seen the impact it's having on the church. We've watched this happen as, as the cost gets higher and the fear of being canceled you know, comes up. And, and this idea of this peer pressure that's such a heavy force, it causes a lot of people to fall away. And we're watching it happen. But that doesn't mean we become people pleasers. We can't do that. But just because we're, we're not people pleasers doesn't mean that we're not people lovers. One of the greatest evidences of the reality of Jesus in the world is the way his people love. Paul has been reassuring the Christians in Thessalonica that despite what anyone says, they were, they were not guilty of, of doing anything wrong. They weren't taking advantage of them. And, and the way that, you know, talk is cheap sometimes. The way that you actually treat somebody is more important. And that's what Paul's going to go to next. He's going to say, think about the love that we displayed while we were with you. Because love authenticates who we are. It proves that we're the real deal when we do that. So verse seven, he says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves or our own lives because you had become very dear to us. Paul, Paul pulls out the, the example of a mother taking care of her own children. And um, I thought about this. It's like a mother's are, this is a perfect example because why do moms do the things they do. Love is the answer. That's the only answer, I think, because moms are pretty much the most unappreciated people in the world, as far as I can tell. Uh, They don't get sick time. They don't get vacation days. They don't ever get many thank yous. They just day in and day out, they, they love, they nurture, they encourage, they build up, they take care of their kids and their family. And there's no question about why they do what they do. It's love. Right? And that's what Paul's getting at here. He's saying, just like a mom, we, we didn't come to get from you. We came to give. We're not here to take. We're here to give. We're here to, to care about you and love you. People are really perceptive. They will know if you care about them or if you're just a conquest to them, if you're just trying to get something from them. They'll know that. And this is so important for us to realize as Christians, as the church, this needs to be evident to people. We're, we live in a really small community, and we need to think about the way the community views us. How do they think of us as Christians? Because they have a definite idea of what Christians are like. And hopefully we can change that perception by the way we love. And that's why we do a lot of the ministries we do here. The food distribution stuff, the warming center. You know, that, that some of these things, you know, the warming center, I don't know why, but sometimes that, that can be controversial. It's like, well, you're actually just enabling bad behavior. We're hearing things like that. Well, maybe, maybe a little bit, but you know what we're also doing? We're telling the community that we are people who love. We don't just say we love. We actually, we actually love. 
And we need to be that kind of people that will authenticate who we are. You know, somebody recently came um, from another church. That we, I was down in Lapine when this happened. Um, they were visiting, but they came up to me and they said, man, I, we noticed such a difference here. The church we were at was very insular. They were very turned in. And you guys are so outward. And, and, and I remember going home that day and thinking, praise God, that was such a cool thing to hear. Because this idea of we're the goodies, they're the baddies, you know, <laughs> hold it tight, you know, us four no more. That's really common in churches today. It really is. And we're like, no, let's go, let's go get in the thick of it. You know, let's, let's get in there and get out into the community. And it's messy for sure, but it's what Jesus did. It's exactly what he did. When you love people, you will not only share the gospel with them, but you will share your life with them. That's hard your very life. But that's what Christian love is. Jesus said that people will know that we belong to him, that we're his followers by the way we do this, by the way we love each other. We're not talking about the be warm and fed kind of love. You know, that's, you know, hey, have a great day. Be warm and fed. See you later. No, this is the lay down your life kind of love, the way Jesus loved. So I like the other one's way easier. You know, hey, I'll pray for you. Now, that's always great. But no, what are you doing? Are you going to get into their lives? Are you going to lay your life down for them? Christians are called to care and minister to others rather than live for themselves. And Paul did this. And I love that. It's just cool to think about what short period of time Paul spent with these people and how much he loved them in that little bit of time. How is that possible? Isn't that the, the, the cool family dynamic of the church is that you can literally begin to love people as family almost immediately. Somebody can come in and visit for the first time and it's like family. And Paul did this. He loved them that, that quickly. So that's the big question. Are you ready to share not only the gospel with others, but also your own lives? It's the call of the Christian, and it's the very essence of who Jesus was. And I loved as I went through this passage, I went kind of back through it afterwards, and I, and I could see that what, what Paul was talking about is exactly what Jesus did. Everything Paul said in there is, is what Jesus did. That's kind of neat to, to look through and see that. So the first thing we see is that Jesus' coming was not in vain, even though he suffered and was shamefully treated. Jesus had boldness to declare who he was and what he came to do in the midst of strong opposition. Jesus had no error in what he said, no impurity in what he did, and no attempt to deceive anybody. Jesus was approved by God and entrusted by him to bring salvation. Jesus sought to please God and not man. Jesus was not a flatterer. He was not greedy. He did not seek his own glory, even though he had every right to. Jesus was gentle and meek among us. He was motivated by love for God and for people. And he demonstrated that love by going to the cross and by literally laying his life down for us. And he's called us as his followers to do the same. Be like Jesus. Don't underestimate the impact we can have on our community when we follow Jesus, his example, and we live our lives this way. You know, we are going to face opposition. Don't let circumstances be the litmus test for success. Watch what God does in the midst of conflict, in the midst of adversity. You know, these guys were said that it says they turned the world upside down. They turned it upside down. But there were times when it didn't look that way or feel that way. It looked like they were being turned upside down, quite frankly. But that's not how it's described. No, they, they, were, wrecking, they were wrecking things in a good way. So we can take heart that God is winning, even though it may not seem that way. Anytime the gospel is preached, it's a win. 
You realize that? They may not say, what must I do to be saved? And, and, you know, it's a win because you've pleased your father. You've done what he's asked you. And you never know where that seed, you know, you, you don't get a, tr- you know, it's, I love those Christmas boxes because we get like tracking numbers and you get to find out where they go and what happens. I wish gospel seeds were that way. Hey, can we get a tracking number on that? Watch where it goes because you have no idea where it goes, do you? But God does. So, so it's a win every time we preach the gospel. Anytime people believe and a church is gathered, it's a win. And anytime we can be a beacon that points people, desperate people, to the light of the world, it's a win. And we have this opportunity day in and day out in our community. And I hope you're as excited about that as I am. I want to see this church grow healthy in all the right ways. And we want to see more people come to Christ. And that's what we're here for. And when that job is done, guess where we get to go? Home. <laughs> not, not like to your houses, but to... <laughs> all right. Uh, Father, we're grateful that we get to uh, look at the example of Pastor Paul and his heart for people. And I pray that that would be our, our heart, that we would have that same mind that Jesus had as far as why we're here and what we're here to do. Um, Lord, that the, the community around us would see people that love you and that people that love each other and that love them even, that that would be kind of that thing that authenticates us as the real deal. Lord, give us more opportunities. I pray that as we leave this place, even today, that we would understand we're going into our mission field and that we have an opportunity maybe to have that conversation today that we've been putting off or, or maybe you would bring new opportunities our way. That's what we ask for, Lord. And we trust you. We thank you that you're in control and that you are winning day in and day out. And we just praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.